Today on the Tove Podcast, we'll explore the doctrine of the remnant of Israel. We'll take a look at the origins of the remnant, what the Apostle Paul has to say about the present remnant, and we'll take a look at where the remnant is heading in the future. That's all today on this 80th episode of the Tove Podcast. You are listening to the Tove Podcast. Welcome to the Tove Podcast. I am excited you've joined us today for this unique study on the doctrine of the remnant of Israel. I'm Levi Hazen, host of the Tove Podcast, and I have the privilege of serving as the Executive Director of Life in Messiah International. Learn more about us, including ways to partner at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, let's begin by asking the question, what is the remnant of Israel? Put simply, it is that part of the Jewish nation, regardless of geography, who believe. Specifically today, it's those Jewish people who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Now, throughout the scriptures, we do find there are two parts to Israel. There's the portion that believe, and this is the remnant, and then there's the non-believing portion. Uh, One should note that the church is never called Israel in the scriptures. The church and Israel are always distinct by God's design. It should also be noted that the remnant of Israel always exists. Its size can change, but it's always in existence except for possibly right after the rapture event. So, number one, only Jewish believers make up the remnant of Israel. Number two, the remnant is a part of the nation of Israel as a whole, never detached from it. In other words, Jewish believers are part of Israel. Number three, the remnant is always a part of the church as a whole, never detached from it. This gives the remnant dual citizenship. They are citizens of the house of Israel, and they are citizens of the church. Now that we've covered some basic principles of the remnant, let's dive into the origins of the doctrine of the remnant. In 1 Kings 16-19, through a few things happened. Let's summarize. In 1 Kings 16, a new religious system is introduced into Israel. This happened because of Ahab's marriage to wicked Jezebel. When Jezebel moved from Sidon into Israel and married Ahab, she brought with her the worship of Baal. In 1 Kings 17, God decrees a drought because of this Baal worship. And interestingly enough, he tells Elijah to go to Sidon. In 1 Kings 18, we see Elijah dueling on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Elijah and God win the duel and end up slaying hundreds of false prophets. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah flees to Mount Sinai because he fears that someone will take his life. And it's there that the historical doctrine of the remnant begins. I'm going to read in the text from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 to 18. Quote, Then the word of the Lord came to him, him being Elijah, And he said to him, 
what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, let's just stop right there. You ever been at the point in your life, or maybe you're there now, and you sense God asking, what are you doing here? You ever ran away from God, and you sense the Spirit saying, what are you doing here, Joe? What are you doing here, Margaret? It's never a good thing to run away from the Lord. The scriptures over and over again encourage us to run to the Lord. Verse 10, he replied, this is Elijah's response to God, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Now, we're going to find out in just a second here that when Elijah says, I alone am left, he's believing a lie. He's believing that he is the only one left from Israel who's remaining faithful to the God of Israel. Verse 11, Then he, being God, said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And there's God's question again. You see, Elijah had ran all the way down to Mount Sinai, which you're talking days of travel here. He had run all the way down there out of fear. He never consulted the Lord on whether or not he should run. He never consulted the Lord on whether or not he should abandon his ministry up north. He thought his life was in danger, which it very well may have been. He took things upon himself, and he just fled. Verse 14, Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. It's the same thing he said in verse 10. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Elijah believes that he's the only faithful Israelite that exists. And it's at this point that God is going to introduce the doctrine of the remnant. But first in verse 15, he says, Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Verse 16, You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahaloah as prophet in your place. Essentially, Elijah got to the point here where he's asking the Lord to take his life. He's asking to be released from his ministry. Now, it's ironic that Elijah is the only prophet to ask the Lord to take his life, and it's the only prophet that would not die. It's a little bit later in the scriptures where Elijah does not die a physical death, but is taken up to heaven by God himself with the chariots of Israel. 
Verse 17 says, Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. Now we have verse 18. Here is the doctrine of the remnant. This is the first time it's introduced in Scripture. It says, But I will leave 7,000 in Israel. Every knee that has not bowed the knee to Baal, and every knee that has not kissed him. So there God even gives us a definition in Elijah's time of the remnant. It is those folks, 7,000 at this time, who have not been involved in the worship of Baal and those who are faithful to God. So we see there that the doctrine of the remnant is introduced right there in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, Throughout Isaiah, the remnant is also mentioned, uh, usually when it's talking about things to come yet in the future. It's talking about the remnant will return to Israel. The remnant will return to God and so forth. We don't have time today to look at all of those passages uh, throughout the prophets, but we do want to move on to Paul and the remnant present. And so that's where we're going to go next. And we're going to start our study of the remnant present. Again, the remnant being those faithful group of Jewish people who are faithful to the God of Israel in their times. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 1, says this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. Verse 3, for I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. So here we see that Paul wishes himself cut off from the Messiah, if it were possible, for those Israelites, those Jewish people who don't yet believe. And of course, in context here, the belief that Paul is referring to is the belief that Jesus is God's anointed son, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah that the prophets have been writing about for so long. Verse 4, he describes these Israelites who don't yet believe. He says they are Israelites, and to them belong, in the present tense, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. Something that we Gentile believers really need to take note of here. That God has not forsaken Israel or rebuked their promises. Rather, we're going to read at the end of Romans 11 that God's promises to Israel are irrevocable. And that is certainly the case with the things mentioned in Romans chapter 9 here. Verse 5, Paul says the ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Messiah, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now here we get to a verse that is, confusing for a lot of people and is often misused by a lot of people. What is Paul saying here when he says not all who are descended from Israel are Israel? Uh, Well, first let's talk about what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah are no longer part of Israel. Nor is Paul saying that anybody who believes in Jesus as the Messiah is now part of Israel. Rather, What Paul is making a distinction between in verse 6 is the remnant versus the non-remnant. Now, with that in mind, let's read this again. It says, For not 
all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, Paul is giving us the picture here, or he's giving us the idea that there is a true Israel. The true Israel in this age we're living in are those group of Jewish people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They are the remnant. And Paul is not stripping Jewish people away from being of the house of Israel here, nor is he giving out citizenship to Israel for Gentiles who believe in Jesus. That is a form of replacement theology. Verse 7, Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that Jewish believers are Abraham's true children. Now, the scriptures also tell us that anybody who believes is a spiritual descendant of Father Abraham, and that is absolutely the truth. But being a descendant of Abraham doesn't make one Jewish, even in a physical sense. What makes someone Jewish physically, by blood, is being a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The scriptures are very clear that you've got to go through Jacob to be a member of the house of Israel. And the Bible never uses a term called spiritual Israel. It doesn't exist. It's something that's been made up. There are no Gentiles part of something called spiritual Israel. Let's just remove that from our vocabularies so that we won't be confused or confuse others. This brings us to verse 8. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered the offspring. Again, Paul continues with this theme of there being this true Israel, this remnant, these Jewish believers. And when we're reading through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and we're remembering that there's something called the remnant and the non-remnant, it puts a lot of things into clarity for us that are otherwise quite confusing. So Romans chapter 9 Really, verses 1 through 13, there's five points to make here. Number one, although Israel as a whole has failed, Paul makes the point that God's word has not failed. And what do I mean when I say Israel as a whole has failed? I mean that when the Messiah of Israel presented himself, the national leadership of Israel primarily rejected him. Now, there were thousands of Jewish believers at that time when Jesus came and shortly thereafter. The book of Acts records that for us. The Gospels record that for us. And so it's not like all Jewish people rejected Jesus. There were a lot of Jewish people who accepted the claims of Jesus. But by and large, the national leadership, the religious leaders of Israel, by and large rejected him, along with uh, quite a bit of the population as well. But Paul wants his readers to know this is not a fault with the word of God, It's what happened with the people. Point two, Paul wants us to know the spiritual blessings do not come through one's physical descent or personal merit. And that is absolutely the case today. Just because someone is born with certain blood does not guarantee them anything in the life to come or even here on earth when it comes to being in a relationship with God. Just because someone is Gentile has zero bearing on whether or not they're in a right relationship with God. Just because someone is Jewish has zero bearing on whether or not they're in a right relationship with God. Paul tells us in other places there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And by saying that, he's not seeking to erase the distinctions between us, the God-given distinctions. Just as Paul has said, there's no distinction between male and female. 
Surely, Bible believers out there would not say that Paul is trying to cancel out the distinctions between male and female, just as he's not canceling out the distinctions between Jew and Gentile. He's saying that we all come to faith, we all must come to God on a level playing field, in the exact same way. In that way is through faith in Jesus. Point number three for Paul in Romans 9. Spiritual blessings come by the grace of God, due solely to the will of God. The only reason you and I have any kind of spiritual blessings is because of God's grace. Scriptures are clear. We don't deserve any blessings. We don't deserve to be forgiven of our sins. We don't deserve to have God's love poured out on us. Those things are gifts. Point number four, physical descent alone will not obtain the promises that Paul's talking about here. In other words, Paul is speaking about and to the Jewish people, and he says, listen, just because you're a member of this tribe, just because you are Jewish, doesn't secure you anything in the life to come. And that is still the case today. Point number five, what Paul is not saying, again, is that promises were taken away from physical Israel and given to the church. That is not what Paul is writing about here. That's not in the context of these scriptures. He's not taking anything and giving it to somebody else. The distinctions that Paul is referring to here at this moment in time in Romans 9 have to do with the remnant versus the non-remnant. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, whose book Footsteps of Messiah has provided a lot of the content today, as well as other Tove podcasts, says this, quote, Paul shows that Israel's rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus did not mean that God's plan and program had come to naught, or that it had fallen short, or that it had fallen aside. Rather, this was all proceeding according to the divine plan. It was in the program of God that Israel would reject the Messiahship of Jesus, and it is because of Israel's rejection of his Messiahship that mercy was extended to the Gentiles. The mercy shown to the Gentiles was not to the total exclusion of the Jews, however, because there is a remnant coming to saving faith even among the Jews. There are vessels of mercy among both Jews and Gentiles, and there are vessels of wrath among both Jews and Gentiles. The reason the gospel went out freely among the Gentiles is because Israel as a nation had rejected it. It is something God had already planned in the Hebrew Bible. End quote. I think Dr. Fruchtenbaum puts it quite succinctly there. So now let's move over as we continue talking about the remnant in the present time. Let's move over to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 1. Quote, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, if you're interested in a deep dive in some of these Romans passages, including Romans 11, I'd invite you to listen to the Tove podcast called Do the Gentiles Want to Know, where we dive deep into these passages. Verse 2 of Romans 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? What passage is that? It's the passage we just read in 1 Kings 19 how he pleads with God against Israel. Verse 3, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. 
Verse 4, but what was God's reply to him? I have 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. Verse 5, Paul gives us the continuation of the remnant even in this church age. In the age of the new covenant, the remnant continues to exist. Verse 5, in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6, now if it's by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. So just as if you're a believer out there, your salvation is because of God's grace, the remnant exists because of God's grace. Verse 7, Paul says, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect, a.k.a. the remnant, did find it. The rest were hardened. And why didn't the rest of Israel find what they were looking for? Well, Romans chapter 10, just a chapter earlier, verses 3 and 4, tells us because they pursued righteousness in the wrong places. Because the majority of Israel apparently thought, and some still think today, that they can obtain righteousness via works, or via prayer, or via X, Y, Z. When the Bible is clear, and this is the good news, that the way to attain righteousness is through faith in God's promised Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. That is the case for our Jewish friends and Gentile friends. So now that we've covered the origin of the doctrine of the remnant, and we've covered a little bit of the remnant in the present times, when we come back in just a second, we're going to look at the remnant in the tribulation period and in the future Messianic kingdom. That's coming up on the Tove Podcast. Since 1887, Life in Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or at lifeinmessiah.org. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Welcome back to the Tove Podcast. We are talking about the remnant. And so far, we've covered the origin of the remnant. We've covered the remnant in the present church age. And now we're going to be talking about the remnant in the tribulation period and in the Messianic kingdom. Before we dive into those things, though, I just want to let you know about Life in Messiah's interactive Passover Seder that's coming up. This is a wonderful experience. Basically, we had a camera crew, uh, Life in Messiah staff, come in from New York City. Uh, we spent a morning and an afternoon filming a Passover Seder, and uh, all you have to do to partake of this Seder is simply go to the link. We're going to have materials for you. Uh, to download uh, for, for free. In fact, we will send uh, up to 300 people their very own physical copy of a Life and Messiah Haggadah. That's the little booklet that you, uh, that you use when you walk through a Passover Seder meal. And so we just really hope that you can partake with us and celebrate with us God's redemption uh, of the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage and, of course, see the completed picture of, uh, of the freedom from bondage brought to you by 
Jesus the Messiah and his shed blood on the cross, visit lifeinmessiah.org forward slash Seder to learn more and uh, even to sign up for this Seder and, uh, and certainly uh, get the link before March 27th. Okay, so diving into now the remnants in the tribulation period, let me just give you a quick overview of the order of future events as I see them. And the next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture. The rapture is the taking up or the catching up of all believers. Uh, that would be the church. And shortly after the rapture, you have uh, the signing of a seven-year covenant uh, made between Israel and a figure known as the Antichrist, and that will begin a seven-year period called generally the Tribulation Period. It's also called the, the period of Jacob's trouble because uh, Israel is being brought under uh, God's rod, and uh, it's not going to be a fun time. Within that tribulation period, you are going to have 144,000 Jewish believers that are going to be sent out to be witnesses across all the earth. It's really going to be an amazing thing. Uh, in fact, what we'll see in just a second is that this remnant escapes harm. They are going to have a special protection over them uh, by the God of Israel, uh, including in the final war against Jerusalem, they're going to be protected. And uh, then what we have at the end of the tribulation period is, uh, is the salvation of all Israel, which Paul talks about at the end of Romans 11, where essentially national Israel, whoever's left at that time, becomes the remnant. So let's dive right in here. I just want to show you a little bit in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, says this, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Interesting. So whoever these people are, in this case it's the remnant, they're going to have a seal of God on their foreheads. This, of course, is in direct contrast to a lot of other people in the world, most of the rest of the world, who will accept what the Bible calls the mark of the beast, uh, which is the number 666. And uh, it says here, John says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. You know, this is another reason this passage right here is how you know that Israel just continues to keep on going and that they will not be wiped off the earth like some of these terrorist states wants to do to them. Uh, it's in scripture. They have a part to play in the future that has not yet been fulfilled. And uh, so any attempt to wipe them out is just futile, and you're really fighting against the God of Israel when you do that. So the next thing John does here is he just lists 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, it's interesting that the tribe of Dan is not mentioned in this, uh, in this listing of the tribes, and people have various thoughts on why that is. Uh, it could be because Dan got caught up in quite a bit of idolatry, as we read in the scriptures, but uh, that's not our topic for today. So Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, tells us that there will be 144,000 at least. They're going to be specially protected, and this is what the Moody Bible Commentary says uh, about this particular passage. Quote, The seal indicates God's ownership and thus protection by God. No more judgment would be exacted against the earth until their safety was assured. These can withstand the wrath of the Lamb because they are rightly related to the Father 
and bear his seal upon their foreheads. They appear in stark contrast to those who are later seen as identifying with the beast by accepting his mark in Revelation 13, 16, uh, end quote. So it's wonderful to get a quote from the trusted Moody Bible Commentary there. If you've not yet got your own copy of the Moody Bible Commentary, I highly recommend it. You can get it on Kindle. Uh, you can get the hardback version. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't make any kickbacks or anything from Moody. I just really love the commentary, and I highly recommend it. Plus, I happen to know the editor, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's a fantastic teacher and a wonderful guy, uh, a Jewish believer himself. And, you know, another thing I love about the Moody commentary is that it takes the stance that Israel and the church are distinct. And so I find the commentary very clear, very helpful. When the scriptures use Israel, the Moody Bible commentary is referencing Israel. When the scriptures use the church, the Moody Bible commentary talks about the church. And so uh, it is a wonderful companion to your study of God's Word. And so that's my two cents for the Moody Bible commentary uh, today. Let's move over to Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So what we see here is the 144,000 were introduced in the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 7. When we get to Revelation chapter 14, we see them come back up again here, and they're on Mount Zion. Now, I don't think this is some kind of heavenly Mount Zion. I think this is literal, earthly Mount Zion. And uh, John continues, he says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I just find that fascinating. Like, even if you have a great song today, other people learn the song and they play it on their guitar or their drums or maybe even a harp. But apparently, this is like a really unique song. No one else can even learn this song except the folks part of the remnant in the tribulation period. So I just find that fascinating. John continues, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. What's interesting here is uh, the Moody Bible Commentary makes the point that these 144,000 are firstfruits, when that could mean that these are the first Jewish people out of a whole harvest of Jewish people which makes a lot of sense because uh, by the end of the tribulation period, you're going to get the entirety of Israel that's going to be saved, that's going to look up and they're going to welcome the Lord Jesus and he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Uh, if we go back to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 29, it says, uh, Paul says, so that you will not be conceited, brothers. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. All right, so Paul says there's a mystery in God's program here and this is it. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Okay, so Paul says that there's some kind of a supernatural hardening over a part of Israel right now. It's God's design. He's doing it. We trust in his sovereignty, but it is partial and it is temporary. And the temporary is until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And then what happens? Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, 
as it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Again, we've said this on the Tove podcast before, but that covenant that assures Israel will ultimately be forgiven of her sins is the new covenant. It's the current covenant that is enacted. That is, uh, it's the current operating system that we have right now. And the operating system is still running, and there are things left for the operating system to perform. And one of those things is the salvation of all Israel, and uh, we await it with great anticipation. Now, finally, that brings us to the Messianic kingdom in the remnant future, and we're going to go through this pretty quick because our time is winding down here on the Tove podcast. Let me just point out to you several characteristics of the future kingdom here. First, let it be known that the remnant of Israel will be the entirety of Israel in the Messianic kingdom. Okay, number two, this kingdom is going to have a Jewish king. Number three, the kingdom will have a Jewish temple. Number four, the kingdom will have a capital located in Israel. That's Jerusalem. Number five, this capital city, Jerusalem, will have Jewish names on the gates. We see that in Revelation 21, verse 12. Also, the population that is uh, inhabiting this kingdom, which includes Jewish people as well as Gentiles, will travel to Jerusalem in observance of Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's just one festival that's mentioned in Scripture. There could be other festivals uh, that we're not learning about yet that we're going to have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. We know that there's going to be memorial sacrifices ongoing uh, in this Millennial Kingdom temple, and and that's going to be exciting. Uh, And then finally, certain leaders in the kingdom will be Jewish. Uh, We know that because in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus promises those who are with him that they will sit on the 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Now, very fascinating there. So there are, there's, there's a whole government system in the Messianic kingdom. So in summary, today, the doctrine of the remnant started with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Then Paul teaches that the remnant is still with us in this present church age. The remnant will exist throughout the tribulation with special protection. And finally, the remnant will be the entirety of Israel during the millennial kingdom. So what's our application for today? Well, let's proclaim the gospel. We don't know how big the size of the remnant can get. We only know that the remnant exists, but God never tells us whether it can be 200,000 people, whether it can be a million people, whether it can all the way reach all the way up to the 14, 15 million Jewish people that are in the world today. Our job, according to Romans 1.16 and multiple other passages, is to simply proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people in truth and in love. And another application is you could partner with a Jewish ministry like Life and Messiah. At Life and Messiah, we are always adding to our family. We're adding to our family of workers. We're adding to our family of volunteers, prayer partners, donors, you name it. And so perhaps a great question to ask the Lord is, Lord, would you want me to partner with Life and Messiah? And uh, we'd love to hear from you if that's the case. And then another application is to read your Bible with distinction. Remember, as you read through the Bible, that there's a separate nation, a separate people called Israel. There's a separate entity within Israel called the remnant. And then there's an entirely separate entity called the church. Having these distinctions in mind as we read our Bibles will help us 
understand the Bible much, much better. And as a reminder, Life and Messiah is having an interactive Passover Seder meal. You can join online for absolutely free. During this interactive Seder, you'll celebrate and remember God's redemption. You'll understand better the connections between the Jewish Passover traditions and our redemption through Jesus. And you'll experience the connection between Passover and the Lord's Supper. That's going to happen on March 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Visit lifeinmessiah.org forward slash Seder. Uh, While there, you'll be able to download all the different materials and uh, sign up for the event. So we look forward to seeing you at Life and Messiah's Interactive Seder on March 27th. I hope you've enjoyed this unique study on the remnant of Israel, past, present, future. If you'd like to listen to previous Tove podcasts, I'd invite you to visit lifeandmessiah.org. Click on the media tab and you'll find the Tove podcast. Otherwise, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and every other place you find a podcast. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.